Hey, Collective Church, I hope that you are well and in good health. My name is Mike Mumford, and I hail from a church called Living Stones in Reno, Nevada. My primary role here at Living Stones has been the music director, but my wife and I are actually currently in the process of planting a new church, and we are super excited. I've been serving here for about 11 years now, and fun fact, Living Stones is the church that Pastor Ryan came from before coming to you, and he and I have been great friends for a long time, and if I may brag on him for just a moment, I've had the privilege with talking to many smart people who've made quite a name for themselves and a living with their intellect, and Ryan is one of the most brilliant and gifted people I've ever met. So you're welcome. <laughs> now, my opinion may be a little biased because he's the closest friend I've ever had, but that's neither here nor there. I'm so glad that he's with you, and let me tell you, he loves you guys. He brags about you all the time. He talks about how intelligent, how interesting, how culturally present you are, how spiritually deep you are. I hope that one day, in the not-too-distant future, after this whole COVID-19 pandemic lockdown nightmare is over, I can come down to LA and visit with you guys face-to-face. Um, so today, we're going to be looking at one of Jesus's parables, which is the parable of the, so- the sower, and it's going be found in the book of Mark chapter 4. I plan to spend our time doing a few things. First, we need to talk about what a parable is and how to read one. Second, we're going to talk about what Jesus's intention was in telling this parable. And third, we're going to explore the significance of this parable for ourselves and how it should impact our lives. So before we jump in, I just want to take a moment to pray and invite God's Spirit to speak. So God, we love you. We want to hear from you. To whom else shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Speak to us today. Amen. So I'm going to read Mark uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, and then we'll kind of start to break it down. It says this, Again he, that's Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd, a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, and since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away, and other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell onto good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has, has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones that are along the path, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, and then, when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. All right, so what is a parable? Right? In Greek, which is you know the original language of the New Testament when it was written in, um, is the word the word parable is uh, it's the word parabole, which literally translates to throw alongside. So it's like a side story to explain. Klein uh, Snodgrass, who's a brilliant uh, theologian and author of the book Stories with Intent, which is basically the most comprehensive guide to understanding the parables that you can get, he defines a parable as an expanded analogy used to convince and persuade. See, Jesus' parables are fictitious but realistic scenarios that he used as examples. See, Jesus is a master teacher. He's absolutely brilliant. And too often we get this picture in our minds of Jesus as this stoic religious icon delivering moral decrees. But in reality, Jesus is this revolutionary teacher. He's innovative and he's creative and he's crafty and he's, a, he's subversive. And he speaks as one who has authority, people used to say about him. And he uses parables as one of his main forms of teaching. And the obvious question is why? Why does he do that? You'd think as a teacher, as we understand it, Westerners, the best way to teach would just be to stand up in front of a crowd and say plainly what your point is. But that's not even close to what Jesus does. In fact, Jesus says in our passage today that one of the reasons he tells parables is to confuse people. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah and he says here in verse 10, 10 through 12, he says, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, that they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. He's trying to confuse people. So why would he do that? There are two main reasons. One, he's trying to buy some time. You see, Jesus was challenging some of the most powerful people in the region, and he knew that if he just came out and said, here I am, your Messiah, Yahweh incarnate, I've come to forgive you of all your sins and grant you eternal life, that he would be put down in haste. The second reason is that, again, he's a good teacher. You see, when we, as just humans, are presented with data that contradicts our biases, our natural inclination is to put our guard up. So Jesus brilliantly circumvents our intellectual security system and hacks into the mainframe of our imagination to plant images and stories into our hearts. See, he was coming with a difficult message. He was the Messiah or Savior, um, but he was not the Messiah that the people expected. The Jewish people at this time expected the Messiah to come and to free them from under the oppressive rule of the Roman government and reestablish Israel as a nation and usher in the messianic age of shalom or God's peace where everything is as it ought to be. And in many ways, Jesus did come to bring God's peace, to bring that shalom, but not by establishing some kind of earthly kingdom. He came to free us from our oppressor for sure, uh, but that enemy is not flesh and blood. He came to free us from sin, to usher in a kingdom without borders because it resides in the hearts of his people. 
which is a beautiful thing. And so if you're out there and you're not a follower of Jesus, just stay tuned. Listen to what Jesus has to say to you today through these words and by the power of his spirit. So another thing that we need to be aware of about Jesus's parables is that they're not about you, right? They're not about me. They're about Jesus, which sounds like a no-brainer, right? But I don't mean that in a philosophical way. I mean that in the most literal way that I can. These were stories that he would tell about himself to try to illustrate what he was up to, specifically about what he was doing. And so this takes me to how we need to read a parable. I often hear people say, and myself included, I say this, what does this passage mean? Or even more so, what does this passage mean to me? Right? And the answer is simple. It means what it means. And what I mean by that is that there is a specific and direct meaning of biblical literature that does not contain hidden meanings to be discovered by us as we go along our spiritual journey. For example, when the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and they see Jesus walking on water and Simon gets out of the boat, it doesn't mean that you need to step out more in faith. It doesn't mean, right? It doesn't mean that you need to step out more in faith and take that big risk for your career or whatever it is. It means that Simon and Jesus walked together on water, albeit briefly. That doesn't mean, however, that there's no significance to us, right? There's a big difference between meaning and significance. Significance is what about the context and content or meaning of this passage seems to tie into my lived experience and how does it inform what I should do or believe in response. When it comes to the parables in particular, the meaning is almost always about something regarding Jesus being the Messiah, coming into Jerusalem to fulfill the scriptures, and how people would either reject or receive him. Now, thankfully, when it comes to interpreting the meaning of a parable, Mark gives us a great example here as he records Jesus breaking down and explaining his own parable um, to the disciples. So first, we're going to read this parable again, which starts in verse 3. So let me read that. It says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or in other words, if you got ears, use them. (laughs) So we're going to jump down to verse 14 and take a look at the meaning of this as Jesus explains. It says this, the sower sows the word, which is the gospel, the word of the kingdom, the good news. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. That's one group. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. This is the next group. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. Third category. They are those who hear the word, but when the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. 
So he's saying, I've come to sow the seeds of the kingdom of heaven, right? Most people will not receive it for one reason or another, but some will. And those few who do receive it will pay big dividends in the kingdom expanding. So now that we understand what the meaning of this passage is, of this parable, what's the significance that it has for us? Or what about our lived experience intersects with this story and how are we supposed to respond? I think there are two main things to explore here. First, as Christians, we are called by God to be ambassadors of his kingdom and the church is his embassy, right? We're called to be heralds and the message is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Come to Jesus and be welcomed in. Come and experience true freedom and true peace and true identity, true personhood in a kingdom of truth and grace and justice and love and flourishing. Come and be healed. Come and be saved. Come and be made new. And it's beautiful. It's powerful, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you know you've staked everything on this. You've been won over by the beauty of God's grace. And the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans that the gospel or the good news of God's kingdom is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And all God's people said, amen. Am I right? So despite, even though it's so beautiful, even though it's so powerful, despite the gospel's wide open arms, many people will reject it. Jesus is painfully realistic in this passage. He's saying out of all the people you reach out to, out of all the people you love and long to see renewed and revived, maybe 25% of people will actually receive it. Jesus is a realist and I love it. He's not a cheerleader or an idealist like, come on guys, let's be on fire and change the world for God. He's like down to earth and he's realistic and he's practical with his disciples. He encourages them to take heart because even though many will reject the gospel, those who receive it will be so overflowing with new life that they too will sow the seed of God's kingdom, which is evidenced by us. Look at us sitting here in the year 2020, hoarding hand sanitizer and toilet paper, and yet still celebrating our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. So take heart and trust. Trust that the gospel is truly the power of God for salvation. Speak with boldness, but also gentleness and love. And trust the gospel to do its work. And don't be discouraged when it doesn't seem to take. Just keep sowing away and watch and wait and see what God does. So I think the second area of significance for us to explore is the concept of the soil. Jesus makes all these distinctions of why people tend to reject the gospel. For some, it's hardness of heart. For some, it's shame. For others, it's worldly desires. I think the significance for us here is to take a good look at our hearts, our soil. What's in there? Like for real. Is it healthy, fertile soil, ready to receive God's word with eagerness? Or is it unhealthy? And if it's unhealthy, why? See, if you feel distant from God, if you feel fearful of the future, if you feel that gnawing emptiness when Netflix stops and asks you if you're still watching and you can't find the remote for like three seconds, it's time to look at the soil. For the seed that fell on the path, for the hardened heart, what happened to you? There are lots of reasons why your heart may have grown hard. And some of these reasons may seem like ancient history, while others of these things feel like freshly salted wounds. 
Maybe a meaningful friendship has ended in betrayal. Maybe someone who was supposed to be a caretaker or protector was neglectful or worse, took advantage of your vulnerability. Maybe during this pandemic, you've lost a loved one. Maybe there's a million hurts in there. At any rate, a hardened heart can be a helpful defense against pain. Like a shield, a hardened heart is not easily penetrated, but it's a two-sided coin, isn't it? Like the same hardness of heart that protects you is also immune to love and averse to joy, isn't it? The warning for you is that while an impervious heart may be effective in the short term, in the long term, it leaves you open for the Satan to come and steal away the life-giving seeds of the gospel, as Jesus explains in verse 15. He says, and these are the ones sown along the path where the word is sown. Then they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so if that's you, what I'm saying is that Jesus is drawing near to you to offer healing. He will remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He will melt the ice with his love and he will flood the darkness with his glorious light. And it will be a journey, no doubt, one that may take years depending on the depth of the wounds that you've, that you've suffered. But I promise that Jesus, the great physician, knows his way around your broken heart. And so I urge you to take these wounds to the Lord in prayer, right? It may be brutal at first. You may find that your mind will dart all over the place and you're trying, as you're trying to avoid remembering these painful things that were done or said. But just go to Jesus daily and sit in his healing presence with quietness and offer these things to him. So for the seed that fell along the, lo- the rocks, the persecuted person, who, my question is, who or what do you fear? For most of us in the United States in 2020, we're not going to be threatened with bodily harm because of our affiliation with Jesus. So it's easy to gloss over this one. But I would say that for us, our main source of persecution isn't fear of death. It's shame. We're embarrassed to be associated with Jesus sometimes. We're uncomfortable claiming that morality is not relative. We're uneasy saying that there's only one God and one path to him, and so we cower, right? We try to fit in with the culture. We try to fly under the radar. Like you may have faith in Jesus, but by observing your life, you'd be the only one that knew it. And I mean, it makes sense in this day and age, you know, to be called a Christian is often synonymous with being called a bigot. And so we hide it. We try to blend in. So you may think you're pulling it off, but what's really happening is that by you trying to hide your truest identity in Jesus, you're choking out the seeds of the gospel in your heart. You're depriving the seed of God's good work in you of the necessary nutrients it needs to blossom and to bloom into abundant life. And you're realistically just a few tough situations from abandoning your affiliation to Jesus altogether. And so to you, what I recommend is confession and repentance. Just come to Jesus and pray, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been ashamed of you. I've been embarrassed to be seen with you. I've tried to hide my association with you. And I'm sorry. Help me to trust you. Give me courage. And then just keep coming back 
day after day and asking for courage. Because here's the thing, you will be persecuted for being associated with Jesus. You will be mocked. You will be slandered. See, not only do we know that from experience, but Jesus also called it in the Bible. Like in Matthew chapter 10, and I quote, he said, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Thanks. <laughs> See, if you've signed up for Christianity because someone told you that it would solve all your problems, or you come to church just to be just to have an uplifting experience, or if you feel like association with Jesus gives you some kind of moral high ground, like I hate to break it to you, but that's not what this thing is about, and that will wear out fast when things get difficult. Apprenticeship to Jesus requires a wholesale abandonment of our own agenda. But let me tell you, there is nothing more freeing than being wholly submitted to Jesus. As the old hymn goes, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. So for the seed sown among thorns, the heart that's bound to worldly desires, here's my question for you. Are you satisfied? When will you have drunk your fill? See, legend has it that a reporter once asked John D. Rockefeller, you know, from Rockefeller Square, how much money is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. And this is true of all worldly desires. How much money, how much clout, how much sex do you need to be satisfied? Spoiler alert, you will never be satisfied. Our souls are like black holes. I mean, the more they consume, the bigger the void gets. They're never satisfied, just hungrier and hungrier. Your body will never be fit enough. Your life will never be interesting enough. Your career will never be impress impressive enough. You will always, always, always want more. For some of us, however, it's not the pursuit of more that binds us to worldly things. It's the fear of lacking. A scarcity mindset. Perfect example, the grocery store down the street hasn't had toilet paper in stock for two months. And when we feel like there isn't enough, suddenly we become so self-focused that we lose the capacity for kingdom living. We can't be generous because we're too busy hoarding. We can't be present with people because all we can think about is whether or not this person is an asymptomatic carrier, right? We see the clear racial injustice and the lack of testing and healthcare available to minority communities. And all that we can think about is, or at least for, for people of, of like white people, middle-class white people like myself is, yeah, but where's my nearest testing site, right? So to you, I recommend fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that's been practiced by God's people for millennia. Now, I'm sure that if you fasted, I'm sure that you fasted for a blood test or something before, but fasting for spiritual reasons is typically a once a week denial of food from dinner one night to dinner the following day. And it's a way to teach ourselves self-denial. The late Dallas Willard, who was a brilliant philosopher and wrote prolifically on spiritual Christian, Christian spiritual formation, compares fasting to training to be an, uh, he compares it to be, to training to be an athlete. Right? You can't just watch basketball on TV and expect to go one-on-one -on -one with Michael Jordan without being utterly humiliated. You may know in theory how the game works and how the game is played, and you may see the weaknesses of your opponent from your privileged advantage position as a spectator, but you, if you've never dribbled a basketball, the chance of failure is 100%. Right. So what fasting does is it trains our souls to be used to denying our urges. You can't just read in the Bible where it says don't lust and then expect to not tap 
when Google's algorithms serve up some racy image and a clickbaity title when you're mindlessly perusing the internet late at night. Right? If you don't practice self-denial in some way, then you will always be driven by your urges and by your lust. And that's why I recommend fasting. It's a simple, practical, weekly exercise to strengthen your ability of self-denial and thereby reducing your dependence on worldly desires. Okay, so those are some practical ways to address the unhealthy soil that may be present in our lives and to cultivate health. But why? Right? Why would we devote so much energy to pursuing this kind of spiritual vitality? I mean, other than the fact that the scriptures urge us to, here's why. Jesus' mission wasn't solely to get you to heaven. He came to redefine our concept of the good life and to lead us in the way everlasting. He came to transfuse our mortal bodies with eternal life. He came to give us life in the full, and that's not just talking about future glory. Right here, right now, you have access to the most fulfilled life you could possibly imagine. But that's, I'm not talking about being hashtag blessed. I mean real, earthy life of presence to God and deep peace in your soul. But it takes relinquishing our definitions of what is good, our preconceptions of what will satisfy, our proclivity towards self-preservation. It looks like a life of openness, of willing submission, and of self-denial. In the words of St. Augustine, he says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So collective church, take a good look at the soil and don't try to be defensive or make justifications as to why it is the way that it is. Jesus doesn't judge you. Just be honest with what's there and what needs to be healed by Jesus. And then just take it one step at a time. Practice the daily disciplines you know, scripture reading, silence and solitude and prayer. Maybe try a weekly fast. And little by little, with the help of God's spirit, the soil of your heart will be cultivated and fertile and yield 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So collective, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he show you favor and give you peace.